you have a Bible with you, please take it and turn to John chapter 9, the Gospel of John chapter 9. We're going to be looking at a, a fairly lengthy passage uh, today. I'm going to be reading for you verses 8 through 41 of John chapter 9. And remember where we are. The Feast of Tabernacles has just concluded and on his way towards the uh, exits, if you like, of the temple there in the outer courts around the pool of Siloam, Jesus runs across a man who had been there for years begging. And he was in that condition because he had been born blind. And in that moment, Jesus, demonstrating that he was the light of the world, grants sight to this blind man. And this is the reaction that comes. Beginning in verse 8, if you're able, I would ask you to please stand as I read this portion of God's Word, knowing that it is His holy and inspired Word. It comes from Him. And so it is without any error, and it is for our good. As I read this, please follow along and let's give it together our full attention. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things, do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already. And you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we 
are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. Do you not know where he comes from? Uh, You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees heard him, uh, near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is God's word. Let's pray. Now, Father, as we have heard your word read, let us hear it proclaimed and applied in a way that would further our Christ-likeness. Open the eyes, Lord, of those who do not yet see you, strengthen the faith of those who say they believe. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. Did you see in the news uh, this week about the discovery there at the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem? It was just this week. I mean, they're following along with our sermon series. It was just this week. You know, the more they dig up over there, they just keep, keep confirming the details of the Bible. Isn't that fascinating? It's almost like this stuff actually happened. But, but archaeologists, and they're always, you know, I mean, every square inch of Jerusalem is meaningful, right? And, and so there's always archaeologists at work there. And just this week, uh, they were able to confirm that they have unearthed. Now, they knew where the Pool of Siloam was, although they have not uncovered all of it. Because at one point, the Pool of, of Siloam was over an acre in in size it's big you know it's a big kind of pool and um and and they just now have uncovered steps down into the pool that are over 2,000 years old Uh, steps that would have been there at this very moment in the passage we just read steps perhaps the very steps that this man born blind would have been helped down as he descended into the water to wash the mud from his eyes, and for the first time to see the world around him. Well, last week we looked at the first seven verses of this passage in chapter 9. It's the account of the miracle itself, or as John is fond of calling these miracles, it was, it was the sign 
the sixth of the seven signs that Jesus records in the first 11, that, that John records in the first 11 chapters of his gospel. Signs meant to highlight the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That he is who he claimed to be, that he is the fulfillment of all of the messianic prophecies that had gone on so many generations before. He is now there in their sight. We think about the prophecies of Isaiah some 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And how so many times Isaiah foretold of a Messiah who would come, who would open the eyes of the blind. And here we have that fulfilled in the person of Jesus. We have it fulfilled in mud and water. And so Jesus did come. He did come to restore sight. And that is the real meaning behind the number of times he restored physical sight. The real significance of those miracles is not the miracle itself, but what the miracle points to. That's why they're signs and they point to the salvation that Christ has come to give that Jesus did not just merely come to uh, give a helping hand to people who are hampered he didn't just come to make good people better or bad people decent he came to make blind people see he came to make dead people live he came to, great, to he came to grant salvation to the lost and 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 this healing this sign um, is a signpost to that Now all of the messianic longings, all of the prophetic uh, words anticipating this Messiah, they've come now in the person of Christ. And as we move on through this section that we just read, two two themes that kind of come to the forefront are this, the the theme of, of witness and the theme of judgment. And judgment in its fullest sense, not just the terrible judgment that will be exercised upon those who remain in their sin, but judgment in its broadest sense. Biblically speaking, the, 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 the judgment that Jesus is going to come and bring is in its fullest sense, he is going to set everything right. There will be joy and life for those who are in Christ. And yes, there will be punishment and the consequences of sin for those who do not. The point being is that Jesus will bring all things to their fullness. He will bring about the consummation of the ages and an end to sin and death. And we see inklings of that in the very words that Jesus speaks. Well, the first thing we see is that there are people standing around when this miracle happens, which was typically the case. Why? Because when Jesus performed a miracle, he was making a public pronouncement about himself and about what he'd come to do. Now, it's on a Sabbath, and so the temple courts would have been crowded with people. And as Jesus is on his way out of the temple, there as the Feast of Tabernacles ends, we saw last week how he comes upon this man, how in his divine providence this appointment was there. And he comes upon this man who'd been a beggar all of his life because he'd been blind all of his life. And the people who would frequent the temple courts just knew him. He was a fixture there. They'd seen him for years begging. They knew who he was. They knew that he'd never seen and that because of that, He lived as a beggar and would die as a beggar. And so now, all of a sudden, they see something they they had never anticipated. He's he's had his sight granted to him. And you notice what they want to do. I mean, they're they're perplexed by this. They don't say, another miracle. They don't do that. They say, this is amazing. In fact, it was so extraordinary and so upsetting that some are saying, it can't be him. It's got to be someone else. And the others are saying, no, we know this guy. We see him every week. Here he is. And he says, right, it's me. Now, 
I ask you, and this is rhetorical, so just think about it. Why is it, why would there have been a conflict, first of all? Why were there some saying that it can't be him? Why were they saying that? This is not a trick question. They were saying that because they're not too much unlike us. These were not people who lived with a magical worldview. They didn't see fairies everywhere. They didn't just go, well, another blind person was. I mean, you, you notice later on when the man formerly blind is explaining all of this during his second interrogation before the Pharisees, he says, look, no one's ever heard of this before. Where have you ever heard about or read about a man born blind being given his sight? So yeah, the first reaction is mixed. You've got some that are amazed because they're willing to believe what happened. Others are going, it can't be. They settle the argument. Okay, we've had something extraordinary happen. And so the first thing they do is they take him to the religious leaders. Now what we're going to see here is that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, what what John calls, the the people who John calls the Jews here, actually all of these people were Jewish. He refers to the Jews. That's a reference to the religious elites, typically the Pharisees. They bring them to the religious leaders, the religious experts to present him there. And, And that's to be expected. They've just seen something extraordinary. They've seen a miracle. So they bring him to the experts. Now what could go wrong? When have religious experts ever caused a problem, right? Well, all of a sudden now, the conflict ratchets up. And we see here, as the miracle is attested by eyewitness testimony, and and, and let me just say this, in all four of the gospel accounts, eyewitness testimony is important. It's really important. John highlights it especially. In fact, there's been entire books written about John's use of eyewitness testimony. I do not encourage you to read that book at night when you're laying in bed, but entire books have been written on that subject, the importance of eyewitness testimony in the Gospel of John. Why? Well, because Christianity is not a magical faith. Because Christianity is not sorcery, it's not a cult, it's, it's not the imagination of man, it does not depend on myths, it's utterly dependent on things that actually happened and people who actually lived. Because the biblical worldview is one of rationality, of facts confirmed, of sound judgment based upon eyewitness testimony. That's what it is. What matters to the apostle here is truth, what actually happened, the facts. John would never indulge himself in things like, well, this is my truth or this was their truth. No, a man wasn't actually healed, but they experienced him as healed. That would have made no more sense to John as it would make to us. In fact, it might make a little bit more sense to us, sadly, than it would make to John. Now, what mattered was that this thing that happened... This sign that was granted was witnessed by many people. And the first thing they do is they bring him to the religious leaders, perhaps to to have some help in understanding why and how this happened and the significance of it. And what proceeds from there then are three interrogations. It takes on the feel of a legal drama, a courtroom drama. And in 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 many senses, it is that. Because these men are operating authoritatively in accordance with their office as members of the ruling council. And so when they call you before them to 
answer questions. It is a legal event. It is a forensic moment. And so they interrogate the man. And you see there, look at verse 13. Um, they brought him to the Pharisees, this man who'd formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day, key detail, when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. That detail is there to remind us of what's going to be the important thing for the Pharisees. Jesus is a lawbreaker. Because one thing we know, making mud is work. And that's a violation of the Sabbath. Now again, as we've said before, the lessons we take from this is not that you better believe Jesus broke God's law. No, that's not what's happening. Jesus loved God and so therefore he loved God's law. Jesus never once broke the law of God. Not once. Not a single time in thought, word, or deed. The problem was is that these religious experts just didn't understand God. They did not understand Moses. They did not understand the law that God gave through Moses, and so therefore they routinely misinterpreted it and misapplied it. And that's exactly what they're doing here. But for them this means everything. Jesus, once again, we see that he's a lawbreaker, and so the Pharisees asked him, verse 15, how he received his sight. And notice the man says, well, I've already told this group over here, but I'll tell you, um, I was blind, then there was spit and dirt and mud and water, and now my eyes work. That's it. That's my testimony. And then suddenly we see that there's a little bit of a disagreement between the Pharisees. Some are saying, he's a sinner, this Jesus. He's just a sinner. And others are saying, well, I don't know. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing for him to grant sight. And so we're told here that for a moment there's a little bit of a disagreement among the Pharisees, but apparently they worked that out really quickly because they turn back to the man and they say, what do you say about him? And he says, well, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. Now, if we know Jesus, we know that's not, that, that's not there yet, right? But just previously he said, well, this man called Jesus. I don't know where he is. Now he's starting to connect dots. And now he's willing to say, he's a prophet, which means he's doing God's will. He's been sent by God, he's doing God's will. He's, he's not there yet, he doesn't know what he needs to know yet, but, but he's already farther down the road, and the Pharisees see this. And whatever disagreement they had for a moment now seems to be resolved, because now they're reminded of who their enemy is, and their enemy is Jesus. So they dispense with him, and they say, let's go talk to his parents, because you know what I bet? I bet he wasn't born blind at all. Now, this is, this is wishful thinking at this point on their part. Or maybe, maybe their confidence that he wasn't actually born blind comes from the fact that they, they know that if they sit down with these parents, they might be able to persuade them to say, oh, yeah, his sight's great. I mean, you know, corrective lenses maybe, but other than that, he's doing great. Maybe they think that they can pressure them into saying something like that. So they go to the parents, and uh, we see what's, what's going on, don't we? Ver beginning in verse 18, tell us about your son. Was he born blind? And they say, yeah, that's our son, and yes, he was born blind. And do you see the shift in them? But, do, but, but, but we're out of this. You talk to him. He's of age. We don't want anything else to do with this. And John gives us in that parenthetical re re reference, 
the fact that what they're saying there, their rush to, to, to turn them back towards their son um, has a moral explanation behind it, meaning they are afraid of these men. Out of fear of man, out of fear of being put out themselves, it's like they, they throw their son to the wolves. It's a sad moment, isn't it? I understand. I think a part of us would, would sympathize with the parents. It's a fearful moment. But you don't throw your child to the wolves. You just don't do that. And you, but do you see how, how fear of man constricts your heart? How fear, anxiety, lack of faith constricts your heart? Their son, who had been sentenced because he was born blind, to a life as a beggar, has now been released. Their son, who was blind, has now experienced what even they knew was extraordinary. Again, remember, it's not like they were walking around, hey, another healed blind man, boom, boom, boom. You know, they didn't, they didn't anticipate any of this. They didn't know anybody who'd been healed like this. And this had happened for their son. But the anxiety, the fear, so constricts their hearts that they can't even stand up with him and join hands with them, as it were, before the Pharisees and say, yes, we'd like to know this, who this man is so that we can thank him. No, 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 no. None of that. You go talk to him. And it's a bit heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking how fear of man would constrict our hearts. I don't know if that's a struggle for you. It manifests itself in all kinds of ways, fear of man. Oftentimes it turns us into people pleasers. We'll say and do whatever we feel like we need to in order to make so-and-so happy. We want to make sure we walk on eggshells around so-and-so because we can't face if they get upset. Or we're so terrified of being disapproved of, we'll go along with things or say things that we know are against our better judgment. We'll participate in sins just so that we don't feel the rejection of those who are around us. Fear of man will rob you of sleep. It'll rob you of peace. It'll enshrine mankind in the throne of your heart rather than God himself. Even to the extent that you would, in a very practical way, disown your own child, as these parents did. Well, now the Pharisees go back to the man. And he now faces his second interrogation. And you see there beginning in verse 24. So the second time they called the man who'd been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. Now, what that is, is it's one of two things or perhaps both. It could be their way of swearing him in, you know, give glory to God. More likely, it's a rebuke to him. They are in essence saying, stop lying, stop sinning. In other words, they're, they're now coming back with the bad cop routine. Okay, we know you're making this up. We know you're lying. We know you're hiding for something from us. Give glory to God. Stop your sinning. Stop your lying. We know that this man is a sinner. Then he gives that really kind of just barely believing sort of testimony. There's so much he doesn't know yet, but what he does know, he's extremely clear about. You see that, verse 25? 
I don't know this man yet. Whether he's a sinner, I can't say that. I'm not the expert. I'm not you guys. But this I do know. This I can say with authority. I was blind at one time, and now I'm not anymore. And he's responsible for it. So they want to know, what did he do to you? And I love his response. Don't you love what he says to him, beginning there in, in, uh, in verse 27? I've gone over this with you. I've covered this already. I told the people who witnessed it. I told you. And now you want to know again. And he gives them this deliciously sarcastic challenge at this point. You see that? My assumption is, is that you're questioning me again because you might want to be his disciples also. And they wig out. They say, we don't need him. We don't need to be his disciple because we're disciples of Moses. And in his characteristic irony, John helps us to hear those words. These men would say, we are disciples of Moses. The truth is, they were terrible disciples of Moses. Because Moses was the archetypal Old Testament prophet and deliverer who longed to see the coming Christ. Whose words and the law that God gave through him anticipated Jesus directly and indirectly in myriads of ways. If Moses had been there, he would have been the first one, probably, to begin worshiping Jesus. No, they're terrible disciples of Moses. But they also say something very interesting. They say, you're his disciple. You're Jesus' disciple. Now, what they mean as a threat, what they describe in their minds as what would be a crime, a religious crime at that point, ends up being something that becomes true of him. You are his disciple. And that's in, that ends up being the very truth. Now we're told here that they cast him out. They kick him out of the synagogue. Now I want you to know that you pay a hefty price for that. To lose your religious standing. To be cast out of the synagogue. To be excommunicated from the place of worship and the people of God would have put tremendous pressure on you because you would have been marginalized, set outside the religious life of God's people. And if you lose your religious identity at that point, you're also losing, in many ways, your national identity, your ethnic identity, your ability to make a living. So this man who'd been sentenced to be a beggar all of his life, now set free, looks like all of that's still going to be withheld from him. So he's cast out. And again, some of John's beautiful irony here. He's cast out of the synagogue. He's cast out of the temple precincts, the place where the light should be. But now the light has burned out. And the true light, the light that gives life to all who believe, meets him there outside of the temple. Jesus meets the outcast, doesn't he? Jesus meets the throwaway, the castaway, the people who are no use to the self-righteous, the people who are looked down upon by the self-righteous. We think about Jesus' parable of the two men praying in the temple, one a notorious sinner, the other a very religious man. And as the religious man looks down upon the sinner who cannot even lift up his eyes, 
He lifts up his eyes before heaven and says, I thank you, God, that I am not like this man. The other man, knowing his sin, would not disagree with that prayer. He would hope that he would not be the man that he is, but he is. So what does he say? Have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, now one of these two men went home justified. And it's the man who was the sinner. And here this man, now cast out of the temple, excommunicated, would have been considered unclean, a sinner, one that God's people should have nothing to do with. And Jesus meets him there. And notice what he says to him. Verse 35. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now that's the whole crux of the matter for Jesus, isn't it? Jesus gets right down to the most essential business with this man. Do you believe? He doesn't go, man, I can't believe those guys. Are you as mad as I am? We're going to take back that temple, brother. You with me? None of that. Comes to the man and he says, look, I still have business with you. Do you believe? Namely, do you believe in the Son of Man? And again, this is drawing from Old Testament language, particularly from the book of Daniel, the prophecy of Daniel, who sees this great, divine, heavenly person. And he says he's one like the Son of Man. Jesus claims that title. You know, Jesus would have never said, you know, it's not the questions that, I mean, it's not the answer that matter, it's the questions that are really most important. Jesus wouldn't have said that. Jesus wouldn't have said, you know, it's not the destination that matter, it's the journey that counts. No, I'm not discounting journey, okay? It's fine. Great band. Um, but, but Jesus is about answers. He is about destination. Jesus doesn't think it's neat or creative if this man is left wondering that somehow, well, you know, his, his lack of knowledge at Jesus, about Jesus this, at this point is, is good because it allows him to be creative and to, no. I still have business with you. Do you believe? Namely, do you believe in the Son of Man? And you see how he answers him. And verse 36, and who is he, sir, that I may believe? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. Just stop there for a moment. This is the first time anyone has ever said that to him. You have seen. He's never had those words spoken to him until now. You have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Now what you have there in verse 38 is the response of saving faith. We looked at it earlier in our service when we said a portion of the Westminster Shorter Catechism together. Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Well, that's where it all begins. That's the terminal point for all human hearts if they are to know salvation. Lord, I believe. 
And he worshipped him. And all of that gathered together shows that what we have here now is a converted man, a regenerate man, a living man now. He refers to Jesus as Lord. Now this was a Jew. He knew how precious that title was. He says, I believe what is the prescription that Jesus gives us over and over again in the Gospel of John? Believe and be saved. Believe and be saved. Believe and have eternal life. Here he says it all. He gathers up all of this. Lord, I believe. And just so that we know he knew what he was saying, John adds this detail. And he worshipped him. This was not a casual, perfunctory moment. He does not just merely grasp facts, although he must. But he's been changed. Just as sight was granted to his once dead eyes, now life has been granted to his once dead heart. Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. One of the things that we learn from this man, one of the things we have to learn from this man, is his example of giving faithful witness to Christ. You know, from the very first moment, when he still had no clue what was going on, he's still saying what happened. He's never caught in a contradiction. He's never caught in a lie. He never misdirects. From the very first time he's asked about what happened, he says what's true. A man, they called him Jesus, put mud on my eyes, he told me what to do in response, and now my eyes work. He's asked again about it, and he says the same thing. He's asked again about it, and he says the same thing. But with each time he gives witness, more clarity comes, right? First, just a man named Jesus. Then it's a prophet. Then it's someone who must be sent from God. And now it's, Lord, I believe. And what we see in that moment is that the Lord met him in his lost estate. Jesus came to him when he was still blind. He wasn't searching for Jesus. He wasn't reaching out for Jesus. Jesus was reaching out to him. And throughout this ordeal, he just gives faithful witness. Faithful witness even when it costs him. What an example that is for us. We who are called to be his witnesses. I don't know if you saw, uh, Christians are continuing to be persecuted um, in terrible ways in certain parts of the world. There was a Christian pastor just last week who was shot in the chest in, in Pakistan. Um, this continues to, to happen. Uh, in fact, there's, there's mass recriminations going on against Christians throughout the country of Pakistan. Churches being burned down. Uh, uh, Christians are being driven from their homes. Will we give witness? Will we give witness even though it might hurt our feelings? Will we give witness even though it might cost us a place in a club or on a team or might cause our boss to be suspicious of us? Will we give witness? The man serves as an example to us even in his state of ignorance, he was still pointing people to the truth. Well, Jesus answers all of this in 39. And he explains something about why he came. He 
He says, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Well, Jesus is saying there what he has said in different ways at other moments. Think about when Jesus says, you know, it's not, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick who need a doctor. I've come for the sick. Or he said, you know, it's not the righteous who are in need. It's the sinner who are in need. And I've come for sinners. Here he says, it's not those who see well that I've come for. It's for those who can't see. Now, in all of this, Jesus is not saying, you know, some people are so good they don't need a Savior. Some people see so well they don't need me. I've only come for those, who, those people who are messed up. There's lots of people who are doing great, and they don't need me. That's not what Jesus is saying. He is pointing to the rather tragic reality that this world is filled with blind people who are convinced they see. This world is filled with sinners who are convinced they're righteous. This world is filled with dead people who are convinced they're fully alive. And what Jesus tells us here once again is that I come to the blind people who know they're blind. I come to the dead people who know they're dead. I come to the broken sinners who know that's their condition because the people who are convinced that they're good enough for God are lost. They will not seek me. They will not open their eyes. I do not come for those who are so convinced of the health of their sight that they'll never look to me. And some of the Pharisees hear him say this, verse 40, and they say, hold it, whoa, 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 are we so blind? Now they're not asking a question looking for an answer. They think they're asking a ridiculous question you know, reductio ad absurdum. They think that they're asking a question that's so absurd, Jesus will go, oh, my bad. Are we so blind? Well, right. That's what I've been saying here. Yes, that's exactly the problem. You, who think you see so well, you are the blind ones. Do you see what Jesus says, 41? If you were blind you would have no guilt. And now that you say we see, your guilt remains. You see what Jesus is saying? Oh, if you just knew you were blind, salvation would come to your house. Oh, if you just admit the truth that you can't see, I'd be here. I'd save you. But as it is, you say you see. And so you remain in your blindness. You know, Jesus is still the great dividing point in humanity. We see it here in a microcosm. One man says, Jesus is Lord. And the other people say, no, he's not. But no matter how much the enemies of Jesus, the unbelievers, the mockers, no matter how much they howl away, what they cannot do is change the fact that this man once was blind, but now he sees. The man who didn't even know who Jesus was now calls him Lord, and he worships him. And in the beginning, it's this very unlearned profession. There's so much I don't know about Jesus. I can't tell you if he's a sinner or not. I just know what he did for me. 
And you know, if you know Jesus, that's your testimony. I know what He did for me. And your testimony needs to mature beyond that, but, but it can begin there. And maybe you're a rather new Christian and there's still a whole lot you don't know yet. And you say, listen, I don't know a lot of theology yet. I, I don't know the Westminster whatever it is you call it. Um, I don't know anything about Calvinism or Arminianism, although you know, Arminia seems to be a perfectly fine country. I don't know why you dislike it so much. But here's what I know. I'm not what I used to be because of Jesus. And I, and I can't explain it well yet. I don't know all of the proper theological categories yet. But because of Jesus, because He is Lord, because I believe in Him, I see in a way I didn't see before. Can you say, I was that, but now I'm this? Can you say that? I once was lost in sin without any hope for eternity, but Jesus changed all of that. Can you say that? Even if you grew up as in a Christian home and you have a wonderful testimony, and I call this a wonderful testimony, where you've heard the gospel your whole life, if, if that's your testimony, give thanks to God for that. I point that out because a lot of us were raised in traditions that if you hadn't spent 10 years as an addict and you know attempted murder and that kind of thing, then you didn't really have a good testimony. It's a wonderful testimony. To say, I was raised by parents who loved Jesus, and I was raised in the church, and I can't even ever pinpoint a moment when I didn't believe. If that's your testimony, give thanks to God for it, but you also know what it's like to know I'm not what I was. I used to be this, but now I'm this, by God's grace. It used to be that that the truth I believed meant little or, or nothing to me and I couldn't grasp it well, now it makes all the difference. Can you say that? 15-year-old, can you say that? You've been in church your whole life. Maybe you've been in this church your whole life. Yes, Jesus, I know Jesus. But has he made the difference? How about you who are university students or young professionals? Has, true, has Jesus truly made the difference in you? Can you say, I used to not see, but now I see because of Christ? Young wife, mother, you're busy, and you're, and you're busy, and you're tired, and you're tired some more. Through it all, are you still able to say, I'm not what I was, I can see. Professional man, maybe you love your job, maybe you hate it. Maybe you're the boss, or maybe you have a difficult boss. Maybe you're struggling at home or doing well at home. Maybe you're satisfied or deeply discontent. Wherever you are, nevertheless, what is your testimony? Are you able to say, I am not what I once was? Seasoned adult who's confessed to Jesus for 50 years or 60 years or 70 years, are you still able to say, Jesus made the difference? I think it was A.W. Tozer who said that the profession of faith that means nothing to the person is the profession of faith that means nothing to God either. So when we say we believe, are we simultaneously saying, Lord, I believe. And we worship Him. The radical 
pride-offending simplicity of what John lays out for us here is what he has been showing us the entire time in this Gospel. The scandalously simple spiritual arithmetic of the Gospel. Believe and be saved. Only Jesus says that to you. Not a single philosophy of man. Certainly not another religion on this planet makes a promise that audacious. But grounded in the objective work that he did. Jesus can say, believe and be saved. Because he shed his blood, covered your guilt, and raised himself up to give you life everlasting. That's why he can say, believe and be saved. You who are skeptics, you who have not believed yet, run to that man. Go to Jesus. You don't see. You don't see. Acknowledge that. And go to the one who can flood your life with light. Let's pray. Oh God, bring your word, your truth to life in us. Once again, Lord, we make our confession. We believe, Lord, and we worship you. Amen. Let's